0: Welcome back to Blood and Guts and I kind of want to insert the TikTok audio where it's like bus club another club another club because we are not stopping you got you got a three part Zodiac Killer series we're about to do another two-parter because Genesis yelled at me (laughs) two I think it can be two parts. I think it can be I two think parts.
1: you are woefully correct. <laughs> Might be another three-parter. Uh, depends on how long this episode is. So, um... Oh, it's gonna be three parts, which <laughs> is great. Because after the second part, I run out of art ideas. <laughs> I also completely do not remember what we're talking about. Okay.
0: Well, well good thing that... Now I get to introduce you to these terrible people today. Well,
1: you, just usually, just usually you ask, you're like, uh, who are we doing? And I'm always like, uh, I don't know. Well,
0: no, I was I, I normally ask when you do it. I'm like, what are we doing? And then you're like, I'm going to surprise you. And then I'm like, have you oh, heard of I these feel- people?
1: don't even remember okay like, so on the recordings when you're like oh who are you talking about i'm like whoa who am i talking about?" <laughs> with the google doc open oh gee i wonder
0: okay so um we talked about a big guy last week and we are going to continue to talk about a big case today we are talking about ian brady and myra hindley aka the um, moore's murders yeah. um i i got introduced to this um case when i was reading a the book the anatomy of evil it's a really great book it's by michael stone i almost said michael scott um not michael scott (laughs) um it's a really good book and he mentioned them somewhere and it really piqued my interest so i decided to um do some research and make an episode on it um and i have um as aforementioned 17 pages of notes so this i was originally going to start this off been like "Mm, you know i have a stopping point like whatever but um we're definitely gonna make this. <laughs> your stopping. Your stopping point is baby. That's when I'm going to leave the recording. <laughs> okay. Um. So without further ado, let's just get into it. We have a lot to cover. Um. Because I have early life for both of these people. Because it's kind of. It's obviously going to be more when you have two killers. Um, so these guys were a couple. Um, so let's talk about the early life of Ian. So Ian was born, Ian Duncan Stewart, in Glasgow, Scotland. That wasn't a good accent. I'm so sorry to all of our Scottish oh listeners. God. I'm so sorry. Okay, he was oh born <laughs> He was born in Glasgow on January 2nd, 1938. So he's an oldie. Um, he's also dead. So... <laughs> Um, His mother was Margaret Stewart, a.k.a. her Peggy. Um, She was an unmarried tea room waitress. He had no identified father, but Peggy said he was a reporter for a Glasgow newspaper who died three months before Ian was born. He grew up in the tough slum neighborhood of the Gorbals, which um, we are from Murica. So I don't know where these places are. And I'm going to try my best to pronounce them as they're supposed to be pronounced. Um, But not in a Scottish accent because I feel like that's offensive. Okay. (laughs) Um, Peggy could not continue to care for Ian, but hoped to spare him the stigma of illegitimacy. And so she gave him to Mary and John Sloan, a local couple with four children of their own, which good for them for taking on another child. (laughs) You hear these people where it's like, yeah, I grew up with nine siblings. And I'm like, how did your mom do it? How did your mom, A, birth all of you, and B, still sane? Well, that can't be confirmed. Okay. (laughs) Um, So Ian took their name and became known as Ian Sloan, but his mother continued to visit him throughout the first 12 years of his life and often indulged him with gifts. Um, ian showed signs of dysfunctional behavior and moodiness early on when he did not get his way he would throw violent tantrums which sometimes ended in him banging his head against a wall neighbors began to notice he was socially um sorry no (laughs) neighbors began to notice his socially unacceptable origins and his sullen unsociable personality as well as his lack of football skills which of course made him unpopular with the local children Ian soon figured out who Peggy was, and that the Sloanes were not his real family. Which I just want to know: who did he think Peggy was when she came to visit him? Like this random lady's just bringing him gifts. Like, who did who did he think this lady was?
1: Just Santa, but different.
0: <laughs> just, just God, like. <laughs> He came to resent his illegitimacy and began to see himself as a rebellious outsider who was not bound to the same rules as others. At nine years old, he visited.
1: (laughs) Ah, Yes, the JD from Heather's syndrome.
0: (laughs) At nine years old, he visited Loch Lomond. Maybe that's how it's pronounced. Not Loch Ness, so no ties to any sea monster with his uh, so he visited there with his family when he where he discovered a love for the outdoors and a few months later the family moved to a new council house on an overspill estate at Pollock, i believe it's pronounced at school he was a handsome and well-dressed boy but not well-liked at 11 years old he was accepted at shalin's academy a school for above average children there his behavior worsened he was lazy not applying himself and disobedient he started smoking and virtually gave up schoolwork. which same not for the smoking part but never mind <laughs> At this point, um, he had developed a fascination with Nazi Germany. Ew. Love it. Nazi Germany, Nazi pageantry, and Nazi symbolism. This is where you need to pump the brakes, take a step back, and be like, whoa, are you okay? (laughs) He often asked other boys for souvenirs that their fathers brought back home from the war um when playing war games he would insist on being the german also at this time ian began to grow into his perverse and sadistic tendencies including bullying smaller children and torturing animals in grotesque ways uh so that's his er that's just his early life we haven't even got to his teenage years as a teenager, he twice appeared before a juvenile court for housebreaking. He left the academy at 15 and took a job as a T-boy at a Harland and Wolf shipyard in Govan. Nine months later, he started working as a butcher's messenger boy. It was later stated that the experience of viewing meat being cut away from bone may have nurtured his growing interest in physical acts of mutilation and murder. Yucky. He had a girlfriend named Evelyn Grant, but their relationship ended when he threatened her with a flick knife after she visited a dance with another boy. Now, cheating's obviously not okay. However, threatening someone with a knife, also not okay. See, we just talk. Communication's key in a relationship. (laughs) He appeared in court a second time shortly before his 17th birthday with nine charges against him. On the first two occasions, he he was given probation, but on the third, he was deemed incorrigible, and the court ordered him to leave Glasgow and live with his mother. By then, she had moved to Manchester and married a fruit merchant named Patrick Brady. Patrick got Ian a job as a fruit porter at Smithfield Market, and although he did not get along with his stepfather, Ian took his name and began to be known as Ian Brady. Brady's feelings of isolation and hostility then began to manifest in other ways. He would spend hours in his room reading and listening to music. He became increasingly enamored with a philosophy that championed cruelty and torture and that idea that superior creatures had the right to control and destroy weaker ones. I'm just gonna let you take that in.
1: <laughs> let me just
0: absorb. As I as I as I scroll down on my Google Doc, let me just give you a second to just, you know. <laughs> so, Brady avidly collected books about torture and sadomasochism and other paraphilias relating to domination and servitude. He also began even-
1: where that's what I'm wondering about about? for that. Where do you get that? Me just walking about the parts and noble. Hey, so I'm looking for some very like specific <laughs> literature. I uh, mean, I have
0: serial killer books on my shelf, but that's also Yeah,
1: but you don't have a book that's like spankings and why they work. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> I think oh like, where God. do you go? I as don't know. And noble have that in stock. Probably not. I don't, what section would it be in? I don't know. Oh, maybe you go
0: into, you You might go into like those, those like shops, you know, those the the shops, sh- those shops the and they might have shops. them. Yeah, they might have them back there. You maybe. go into the back of Spencer's, they probably have That's them there.
1: not what they have in the back of Spencer's. It could be. No. <laughs> <laughs> they don't include that. <laughs>
0: they have everything else except that
1: you can't sell that at a mall imagine (laughs) some child being like oh mom doesn't want me to see that wall, but you know here's a book about sadomasochism oh my god (laughs) i'm a big reader i'm a gifted child (laughs) well um in addition to this he
0: also began heavily drinking and frequenting the cinema and was in need of extra money to support these new habits so he gambled on horse races God. And that's pretty much it. Um, How old a- is he
1: at that point?
0: Uh, at least 15.
1: Yeah. What kind of gender? I attended the cinema drunk. <laughs> and I-, I bet on horse races. Like, mm-hmm. God, what old man possessed you?
0: I don't know. Within Actually, a we year. Know, well, with the cinema. Hold the on. Within about
1: a- masochism. <laughs> in
0: the dark. Well, hold on. Within a year of moving to Manchester, he was caught with a sack full of lead seals he had stolen and was trying to smuggle out of the market. He was convicted several more times, plus arrested and fined for an incident of public drunkenness. He was sent to Strangeways Prison for three months, and he was still under 18. He was sentenced to two years in a borstal for training. Um, he was sent to Latchmere House in London, then Hatfield, borstal in the West Riding of Yorkshire. Um, I don't know where any of those places are or what they are. I believe they're just like, you know, like training military schools for boys, I'm probably guessing.
1: God, he's the main character, <laughs> but it's a horror movie. <laughs>
0: Um, after being discovered drunk on alcohol he had brewed, he was moved to the much tougher unit in Hull. While incarcerated, Brady learned illegal techniques for acquiring money and entertained grandiose fantasies of becoming a big-time criminal, pulling off lucrative bank heists. He was released on November 14th, 1957. That's my birthday. <laughs> well, not 1957. <laughs> not 1957. I, I can't assure like...
1: you i love that him and i have one thing in common. and it's like wouldn't it be great if i did like rob a bag because it feels like <laughs> oh but wouldn't it be great if i like cut open an animal uh, what if he i disemboweled a the squirrel his <laughs> self-in-order god it's like debbie Debbie ryan radio rebel what if i slaughtered an animal <laughs>
0: Well, he returned to Manchester where he took a job as a laborer, which he hated and was dismissed from another job at Boddington's Brewery. He decided to actually better himself and attained a set of instruction manuals on bookkeeping from a local public library with which he astonished his parents by studying alone in his room for hours. In January 1959, Brady applied for and was offered a job at as a stock clerk at Millwards Merchandising, a wholesale chemical distribution company based in Gorton. He was regarded by his colleagues as a quiet, punctual, but short-tempered young man. He read books, including Teach Yourself German and Mein Kampf, as well as works on Nazi atrocities. (laughs) When you start reading Mein Kampf, that's when, you know, you're done.
1: (laughs) I love that Burns and Noble section.
0: January 19- Does Barnes & Noble sell Main Kampf? Probably
1: no. Probably not. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sorry.
0: I still have that video stuck in my brain where, like, this French child asked for Minecraft and his, like, grandfather something got him a book called Main, Main Kampf because, like, they- Because of the accent. He's like, Minecraft. And he's like, Mein comp. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> it's the funniest video ever. You should look at it. And then his dad's like- Damn, why did you get this for him? <laughs> um, so, January 1961, the awful love story began. He met Myra Hindley, who had just been hired at Millwards as a shorthand typist. For nearly 12 months, he remained distant from her while she was pretty forward. And at the Christmas office party, Brady asked Hindley out for a date. Aww. It gets really gross from here on out. <laughs> um, so, we're done with the early life of Ian. We can move on to Myra now. So, Myra Hindley was born in Crumsel, England on July 23rd, 1942. Her parents were Nellie and Bob Hindley, and Bob was an alcoholic. <laughs> they both beat her regularly as a child. Bob had served with the Parachute Regiment and had been stationed in North Africa, Cyprus, and Italy during World War II. He has been known as a hard man and expected the same of Myra. He taught her to fight and stick up for herself. When she was eight, a local boy scratched her cheeks and drew blood. When she ran to her father crying, he threatened to leather her if she did not retaliate. So she found the boy and knocked him down with a series of punches. She wrote later, at eight years old, I had scored my first victory. Woo! <laughs> Professor Malcolm McCullough McCullough <laughs> Professor Malcolm of forensic psychiatry (laughs) at Cardiff University wrote that Hinley's relationship with her father brutalized her. She was not only used to violence inside the home, but rewarded for it outside. When this happens at a young age, it can distort a person's reaction to such situations for life. So, her family's house was in a poor condition, so she was forced to sleep in a single bed next to her parents' double. Her living situation deteriorated further when her sister, Maureen, was born in August 1946. Maureen comes in play later. She's a key player later. About a year later, when Hindley was five, she was sent to live with her grandmother nearby. So um, now we're going to fast forward to when she's a teenager. One of her closest friends was 13-year-old Michael Higgins. In 1957, he invited her to go swimming with some friends at a local disused reservoir, but instead, Hindley went out with another friend. Higgins ended up actually drowning in the reservoir, and Hindley was deeply upset and blamed herself. After this, she collected for a wreath, and his funeral had a pretty lasting effect on her. Um, Her funeral... uh, Her funeral. Not her funeral. (laughs) His funeral was at St. Francis' Monastery, the same place Hindley had been baptized as a Catholic in 1942. Her mother insisted she be baptized Catholic, but was not to be sent to a Catholic school because her mother believed that all the monks taught was catechism. And if you had a gun to my head, I could not tell you the difference between Catholicism, catechism, and Christianity. I've never understood that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I just avoid all of it. (laughs) to to swerve it
0: yeah so hindley was drawn to the catholic church after she started at rider brow secondary modern and which what the heck kind of name for a school is that i don't even know what that means so wordy yeah and began taking instruction for formal reception into the church soon after higgins funeral you want to know something fun (laughs) always her her confirm her confirmation name was veronica Can you guess what my confirmation name was?
1: Was it also?
0: It was also Veronica.
1: (laughs) I don't, okay, I don't have one, so I can't be fancy like you, I guess. Well, the only reason
0: that I was ever, like, confirmed was because I went to a Catholic school and it was literally, like, required.
1: I literally don't even understand what it means. I have no idea. It basically means, like, you're you're an adult
0: in the church.
1: But why- That's basically what it means. Why like the extra name I don't, it, I
0: don't know I don't it's supposed really to be care. the saint that guides you and you okay. want to know what's so funny I didn't actually mean to pick Veronica I meant to pick Saint Cecilia, which is the painter saint of music, but I forgot her name and I put down Veronica
1: <laughs> who's Veronica
0: She's the one that wiped Jesus's face with a cloth sure. when he was being crucified
1: Yeah I mean I figured <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> look i they named the first book after me and that is the end of my relationship <laughs> with the bible
0: oh so you came before the bible obviously got it okay so her first job was a junior where we are now talking about myra hendley and not any catholic saint
1: her <laughs> jesus, first... <laughs> jesus attended a catholic school
0: yeah her first job was a junior clerk at a local electrical engineering firm she made errands made and typed and was well liked enough that when she lost her first first week's wage packet the other girls took up a collection to replace it which is super nice no one at my work would do that for me
1: (laughs) I wouldn't even do that for me
0: (laughs) at 17 she became engaged after a short relationship but called it off several months later after deciding the young man was immature and unable to provide her with the life she wanted which dang right, (laughs) get it Yeah, she took weekly judo lessons at a local school, but found partners reluctant to train with her because she was often slow to release her grip. (laughs) She took a job at Bratby and Hinchliff what the heck even is that okay an engineering company but was dismissed for absenteeism after six months in january 1961 at 18 she joined Millwards as a typist as soon as uh, she soon became infatuated with ian brady despite his criminal record she began a diary and although she had dates with other men some of the entries detailed her fascination with brady who she spoke to for the first time on july 27th over the next few months, she continued to make entries, but grew increasingly impatient with him until December 22nd when Brady asked her on a date to the movies. So, there you go. You have both Ian and Myra's backstory, and now we're at the same time, that's established timeline, now we're going to talk about how they were as a couple. So, their dates followed a pattern of a movie, usually X-rated, um, and then back to Hindley's house to drink German wine, which... Oddly specific. Brady gave her books to read and they often spent their lunch breaks reading aloud. Um, can you guess what kind of stuff they read?
1: Oh my god. So you're, you've are you been like glitching out the whole time? Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, so all I heard was, can you guess? <laughs> I was like, no! No, I can't! So Brady
0: gave her books to read and they spent their lunch breaks reading aloud these oh. books. Can you guess what they were about?
1: Definitely Nazis.
0: Yup. Yeah. <laughs> Accounts of Nazi atrocities. <laughs> Hind- uh, oh my God! I forgot. I, I forgot this was a thing. Hindley began to emulate an ideal of Aryan perfection, bleaching her hair blonde and applying thick red lipstick. Don't bleach your hair. That's so. That's that's so unhealthy.
1: <laughs> Especially like for Hitler. Like not only, but like to be like, oh yeah, here we go this is it
0: (laughs) she expressed some concern of brady where in a letter to a friend she mentioned an incident where she had been drugged by him but she also wrote of her obsession
1: with him yeah you know i'm starting to get like a little worried like i don't know it's just bad vibes like maybe it's the drugs he slipped me but i don't know he's really cute so (laughs) yeah it's all right i'll let him i'll let him do it again
0: yeah. A few months later, she asked her friend to destroy the letter. Later in her plea for parole, she said, quote, within months, he had convinced me that there was no God at all. He could have told me that the earth was flat, the moon was made of green cheese, and the sun rose in the west. I would have believed him. Such was his power of persuasion. Well, That's when it's unhealthy, ladies. Just so you know.
1: <laughs> gain, gain a brain cell. And brought yeah. to me again. Mm-hmm.
0: Under his influence, she stopped going to church and started hating children, which is <laughs> us right now. Um- <laughs> yeah,
1: done. I don't need a man for that. I was born that way. Thank you, Mom. Yeah. I'm she-,
0: <laughs> she began to change her appearance even further by wearing risque clothing, such as high boots, short skirts,
1: and leather jackets. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> Still. Yeah. At first Both... I was going to be like, oh, she's showing a little angel, but then you said the high boots, and I was like, never mind. opposite. <laughs> Just kidding. Yeah. Angels are away. She's yeah. not that far gone yet. God
0: yeah. bless. <laughs> well, hold on. <laughs> Both Ian and Myra became less sociable to their colleagues. They were regulars at the library, borrowing books on philosophy, as well as crime and torture. Which, you know what? Same. I <laughs> I do that. Oh, my God. Uh. Yeah. Hindley was not a very qualified driver, so she often hired a van in which she and Ian would plan bank robberies, which they never carried out. Hindley was friends with George Clitheroe, the president of the Cheadle Rifle Club, and on occasion would visit two local shooting ranges. Clither- Clither- Clitheroe arranged for her to buy a .22 rifle from a gun merchant in Manchester. She also asked to join a pistol club, but was a poor shot and bad-tempered, so he told her she was unsuitable. <laughs> well, you know what? She also purchased a Webley 45 and a Smith & Wesson 38 from other members of the club. <sighs> Oh, Myra. Oh, Lord. (laughs) They then became interested in photography. (laughs) Their hobbies are all over the place. They're like, ah, yes, Nazis. But ooh, pretty pictures. So Brady owned a box brownie, which took photographs of Myra and her dog, Puppet. But he later got a better one with a time-delay camera and purchased lights and darkroom equipment. They took photos of each other that at the time would have been considered sexually explicit. They took pictures of themselves acting out sadomasochistic fantasies, and one of their East lies... What the heck? I think this is a typo. And one of their ambitions was to crack the illicit amateur pornography market and sell obscene photos of their antics.
1: Yes, me too. (laughs) <laughs> They're like, that's Ooh, one of their goals in life. That's God, it hurts to see someone else living your dream.
0: <laughs> so they later took pictures of each other um standing, uh like kneeling at the burial sites of their victims. <laughs> For Myra, this was <laughs> I love that I wrote this. For Myra, this was a big change from her earlier and shyer nature. <laughs> I love that I wrote that. I was like, yeah, this is important. <laughs> Yeah, in case you hadn't already realized. So now we're getting into the murders. By June 1963, Brady had moved in with Hindley at her grandmother's house on Bannock Street. Hindley claimed that Brady began to talk about committing the perfect murder at that in July 1963. The evening of July 12th, 1963, Brady told Hindley to drive her van around the local area while he followed behind on his motorcycle. And when he spotted a likely victim, he would flash his headlights and brindle. Uh, Brindley. Can, can I talk today? And Hidley was to stop and offer that person a lift. As they drove down gorton Lane, Brady saw a young girl and signaled her to stop, um, which she didn't do until she passed the girl. <laughs> you had one job. She's warming one, up. It's okay. You had one job, Myra. She's but trying. can you imagine? Can you even imagine being that girl? Like the weight that you would bear knowing that you almost got killed by these people unimaginable so (laughs) brady demanded to know why she didn't stop and you know what myra's response was what was it she recognized the girl as marie ruck a near neighbor of her mother oh my god Yeah. (laughs) Shortly after 8 p.m., they were driving down Froxmer Street and Brady spotted a girl wearing a pale blue coat and white high-heeled shoes walking away from them and signaled for Hindley to stop. That night, they claimed their first victim, 16-year-old Pauline Reed. Pauline had attended school with Hindley's younger sister, Maureen, and had also been in a relationship with David Smith, a local boy who had three criminal convictions for minor crimes. He's also a big player in this. He will come back later. She was lured into Hindley's minivan while Brady followed behind on his motorcycle. They drove up to Saddleworth Moor where Hindley asked her to help her look for a lost glove, which is the worst ruse ever. She introduced Brady to Reed as her boyfriend who had also come to help look for the glove. Brady took Pauline into the moor while Hindley waited in the van. Now, obviously as if there is not trigger warning on this entire podcast, but this specifically involves violence towards kids, so if that's not your cup of tea, then maybe click off now. Um, While searching, Brady attacked Pauline and raped her. He then smashed her skull in with a shovel and slashed her throat so violently that she was almost decapitated by two cuts to the throat, including a four-inch incision across her voice box. Uh, After about 30 minutes, Brady returned and took Henley to the spot where Reed lay dying. He told her to stand with Reed while he found a spade that he had hidden nearby. When Hindley asked him if he had raped Reed, he said, of course I did. He then buried her body in the moor. Hindley stated she stayed in the car, um, but Brady's account, Hindley was not only present, but participated in the sexual assault. On the way back, they passed Pauline's mother, Joan, who was with her son, Paul, searching the streets for Pauline. That got me. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Like, oh, my God, that's awful. So police found that no one had seen Reed before her disappearance. And although David Smith was questioned, he was cleared of any involvement. Okay, so next. On November 23rd, 1963, they killed their second victim, 12-year-old John Kilbride. Hindley lured him into her car from a marketplace in Ashton-Underline and asked him to help her carry some boxes. So, Slightly more acceptable ruse. However, don't kill people. Um <laughs> they offered him a lift home because Kilbride said his parents might worry that he was out so late. They also promised him a bottle of sherry. Once he was inside, the hired Ford Angelica, Brady said they would have to make a detour for the sherry. He also suggested another route to search for a glove Hintley had lost on the moor. Brady took the boy with him while Hindley waited in the car. Brady then sexually assaulted Kilbride and attempted to stab the boy with a knife, but it was too blunt, so he strangled him to death with a piece of string and buried his body. A huge search ensued, with over 700 statements taken and 500 missing posters printed. Eight days after he failed to come home, 2,000 volunteers searched waste grounds in abandoned buildings. Hindley hired a vehicle a week after the murder of Kilbride, and again on December 21st, 1963, to make sure the burial sites had not been disturbed. Okay. Let's take a little breather. We got more victims to go through. <laughs> Um, Okay, so on June 16th, 1964, their third victim was another 12 year old boy, Keith Bennett. He vanished on his way to his grandmother's house in long sight in the evening. Hindley lured him into her mini pickup, which Brady was sitting in the back of by asking him for help loading some boxes, after which she would drive him home. She drove to a lay by on Saddleworth and Brady went off with Bennett looking for a lost glove. Brady, again, sexually assaulted Keith in a ravine, before strangling him to death with a string and burying his body. His body has never been found. We're going to talk more about this later. They did a lot of searching for this body, but this is, I think, the only one that was never found. Hindley kept watch, and after about a half hour, Brady came back. Bennett's stepfather, Jimmy Johnson, which it's a fun name, Jimmy Johnson, <laughs> Became a suspect in the two years following the boy's disappearance. He was taken in for questioning four times. Detectives searched under the floorboards of the Johnson's house, and when it was discovered that the houses in the row were connected, the search extended to the entire street. But nothing came out of this. So the fourth victim was 10-year-old Leslie Ann Downey. Brady and Hindley went to a fair in Amcotes on December 26, 1964, and noted that Leslie was apparently alone. They approached her and deliberately dropped some things they were carrying and asked her to help take the packages to their car and then to their house. At the house, Leslie was undressed, gagged, and forced to pose for photographs before being raped and killed. (sighs) Okay, so Hindley stated later that she went to draw a bath for the girl but found her dead when she returned. Like, you absolute monster. How dare you? Like, how dare you say you were going to do something that was going to help her when really you just tortured her until her last breath? Like, how dare you? What she actually did was record the child's rape and torture by Brady on an audio tape. So... Great going, Myra. Absolute, terrible liar. Um, so the tape clearly records the voices of Brady, Hindley, and the child, who is, trigger warning, screaming, protesting, asking to go home, and pleading for her life. Brady claimed that Hindley killed her. What is the most shocking to me is the fact that this audio tape, and I'll mention it later, was actually played in court. Like, the jury had to hear this, which I cannot imagine. I cannot imagine. The next morning, they drove Leslie's body to Saddleworth and buried her naked with her clothes at her feet. Now, um, we're going to wrap up here. On October 6th, 1965, the couple claimed their fifth and final victim, 17-year-old Edward Evans. Hindley drove Brady to Manchester Central Railway Station, where she waited outside the car while he picked a victim. After a few minutes, Brady came back with Evans, an apprentice engineer who lived in Ardwick. He introduced Hindley as his sister. They then took him back to their house on 16 Wardlebrook Avenue, Hattersley, Cheshire, where they drank a bottle of wine. At some point, Brady sent Hindley to fetch David Smith, again, I told you he'd come back. the husband of Hindley's younger sister, Maureen. So, we're, a lot of weird parallels. So, this dude who, was actually, who dated Pauline, who was the first victim, is now the husband of Hindley's sister, which, that just seems weird. Brady had been making a friendship with Smith, which was worrying Myra as she felt it compromised their freedom, which, you know what, is exactly what happened. <laughs> Hindley returned with Smith and told him to wait outside for her signal. When the signal came, Smith knocked on the door and was met by Brady and then left to go get the wine. Smith said, I waited about a minute or two. Then suddenly I heard a hell of a scream. It sounded like a woman, really high pitched. Then the screams carried on one after another, really loud. Then I heard Myra shout, Dave, help him. Very loud. When I ran in, I just stood inside the living room and I saw a young lad. He was lying with his head and shoulders on the couch and his legs were on the floor. He was facing upwards. Ian was standing over him, facing him with his legs on either side of the lad's legs. The lad was still screaming ian had a hatchet in his hand he was holding it above his head and he hit the lad on the left side of the head with the hatchet i heard the blow it was a terrible hard blow it sounded horrible he then watched brady throttle evans with electrical cord brady sprained his ankle in the struggle and evans body was too heavy for smith to carry to the car on his own so they wrapped it in plastic and put it in the spare bedroom and that is where we are going to stop for today next next week we'll get into the investigation and the arrest which it's so funny that Myra was like ah yes you know I'm really worried that this dude is going to compromise our freedom and that is exactly what he did (laughs) um so there you go we've gotten through most of the morbid stuff that was all that was all the murders they didn't do anything else um
1: and yeah, how you doing? So good.
0: <laughs> Apologies, but it's it's it comes back later because later there's there's actually a lot of information about them in jail. I have an entire section about their entire incarceration, and they really just had an awful time. <laughs> Which thank God they did. Yeah. Um. Yeah. It was yeah god bless that they had an awful time just they got everything coming to them (laughs) so i will be posting photos of all of the victims you can find that on instagram at what's our instagram blood and guts pod we're on twitter at blood underscore guts pod there you can find links to our website where you can email us whatever you want to email us tell us about your day give us a case suggestion give us suggestions for ghosts give us your ghost stories give us your creepy stories maybe you met a murderer once in your life we want to know <laughs> um on all of the platforms that we are on you can probably rate subscribe follow that helps get the word about the podcast out there we really appreciate any reviews that you give us on apple podcast we are slowly rising the ranks of the true crime podcasts um and do you have a psa
1: Um, PSA, don't kill children.
0: That's a good one.
1: (laughs) I agree. I think it's (laughs) crucial. Yeah. Um, you know, PSA, um, if you're shy and, like, a little, like, internal and, you know, you're just having a good time. And you meet a boy who's like, I just don't belong here. I belong (laughs) in the ranks of the Nazi army. Maybe walk away.
0: Yeah, maybe, you know, just, maybe say no to that date.
1: Maybe you flee. <laughs> maybe flee. You know, like, look behind you, make sure, you know, you're not being mm-hmm. followed by, mm-hmm. uh, he, you know, he would idolize the Joker.
0: Yup, we've mentioned this before.
1: <laughs> yeah and it comes back because I'm teaching you the real life lessons that you <laughs> know and it's a run yeah
0: Um. so yeah that was the episode come back next Sunday for part two we're gonna get into the investigation the arrest the trial which the trial was something
1: else <laughs> <laughs> it really was that's really the only part I fully remember because yeah I, the trial like... was
0: something else bruh. Um yeah. So I hope you all have a wonderful week. And for the love of God, don't idolize Nazis.
1: And don't kill children. Don't kill children. <laughs> Bye everyone. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>